All right, we are jumping back into Matthew. Um, we, we started back in our series last Sunday. So this is our second week back in our study through Matthew. Um, today's message is entitled, Jesus More Than a Man. And this message, uh, this text that we're looking at today is a little more uh, theological, a little more, requires a little like kind of theology study hat a little bit today. So Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, uh, Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's been having this interaction with the religious leaders in the temple. Uh, they've, they're plotting to trap him, and so they've been asking him these questions. He's answered their questions, and now they're huddled up and they're regrouping. And here's our text today, Matthew 22. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your incredible love and grace toward us. And God, this morning we appeal to your grace as we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us. Help us to see our need for a Savior, and help us to receive Jesus as our Savior this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so who do you think, or excuse me, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This is Jesus' question. And it's actually the most important question, the kind of the question of all questions. What do you think about Christ? And when it comes to opinions about Jesus, history has never lacked for a variety of suggestions. The leaders leaders of Jesus' day said that he did what he did by the power of hell. A hundred years later, the Jews wrote this of Jesus. They said, Jesus practiced magic and he led Israel astray. A few hundred years later, a man named Julian, uh, he had the name Julian the Apostate, it's a nice name, uh, came to power in Rome. He was the emperor of Rome. And uh, Julian was known as the ancient adversary of Christianity. And he said these words about Jesus. He said, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years, having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless anyone thinks it's a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs. It's crazy. That seems like good stuff to me. Anyway, the the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 1700s said this, When Plato describes his imaginary righteous man, loaded with all the punishments and guilt, yet meriting the highest rewards of virtue, he describes exactly the character of Jesus Christ. Ralph Waldo Emerson, himself not a believer, said this of Jesus, Jesus is the most perfect of all the men that have yet appeared on the earth. Napoleon Bonaparte said Jesus was the emperor of love, right? True Frenchman there. Dr. Uh, David Strauss, who's a staunch hater of Christianity and who denied all of the supernatural claims of Christ and, and staunchly denies all of the supernatural claims of Christianity in general, he said this of Jesus, Jesus is the highest model of religion within the reach of human thought. The author H.G. Wells, 
who's very cynical of all religions, he said, I was once asked which single individual has left the most permanent impression on the world, whether it was Jesus of Nazareth. And I agree, Jesus stands first. See, history gives us an interesting assessment of humanity's thoughts on Jesus. Believers, of course, we believe that Jesus is God, but even non-believers give a sort of condescending, uh, patronizing agreement that like, well, yeah, maybe he might have been the best man that ever lived. But they draw the line there. Where things get crazy is when we start calling Jesus God. In fact, the most attacked point of Christian doctrine is the deity of Jesus Christ. It's not the existence, the historical existence of Jesus that fires people up. Uh, It's not even so much what he taught or even his miracles. It's the major resistance to Christianity is the resistance to the deity of Jesus Christ. And there are many uh, religions and many systems of belief then as now that refute or deny uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. And here are some modern examples of this. Muslim theology teaches that Jesus was a prophet, not, but not at the same level as Moses or Muhammad. They also teach that his, his religion was Islam, not Christianity. Uh, the Center for Spiritual Awareness in Los Angeles declares that Jesus was an enlightened soul and encourages everyone to discover and explore their own Christ nature within themselves. Christian science teaches Jesus was a mere man who demonstrated a divine idea, but his shed blood is meaningless to us today. Uh, The Church of the Living Words leader, John Robert Stevens, considers himself the Messiah and God's mouthpiece on earth. Uh, Just down in the valley, if you want to check that place out, it's incredible. Uh, The Universalist Church... Uh, The Universalist Church teaches Jesus is a man with a Christ consciousness, one of many men who have achieved that level. A Freemasonry states, just recently there was an interview with a a very high-ranking Freemason, and he said that we tell the sincere Christian that Jesus was but a man like us. Hare Krishna teaches Jesus is just another guru. Jehovah's Witness teaches that Jesus is the created being Michael. Mormons uh, teach that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Scientology teaches that Jesus was a man who achieved a state of clear, but not the highest level of an operating thetan, whatever the heck that means. (laughs) There's some local churches here in Ventura that teach that Jesus was neither fully God, nor was he fully man, but he was some kind of a combination of the two, like pieces of each. And the Unitarians teach that Jesus was a good man and a great example for us to follow. See, this confusion is just some of our modern culture's response to Jesus' ancient question. What do you think about the Christ and whose son is he? This remains as powerful and as poignant a question as it was 2,000 years ago. It remains as divisive a question as it was 2,000 years ago. And Jesus' question requires a little more context in order for us to see the power in it. It's important for us to get this because how we respond to this question matters. And so here's some more context of this question. Um, It's been a few months, and so uh, just so we can all be on the same page, Jesus is in the temple when he asks the leaders this question. And it's on a Wednesday, okay? Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday in two days, okay? And he's going to rise from the dead on Sunday, Jesus threw threw over the money changers' tables just the day before on Tuesday. So here he is back in the temple the day after throwing over the money changers' table, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. 
the religious leaders, when he arrived there and he started teaching this day, they had confronted him and they asked him, what, what authority do you have to teach this stuff? Where do you get off saying this stuff and doing the things you're doing is the, the kind of the essence of what they were saying. And Jesus responded with some parables. He tells these stories about the kingdom of God. And he concludes these parables by telling the religious leaders the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them and is going to be given to a people who produce kingdom fruit. Of course, the religious leaders didn't like that conclusion. And they're livid with Jesus. They're totally over him. They just want to shut him down. They're frustrated that Jesus teaches against them. They're frustrated that Jesus has this uh, supernatural power that, that they don't have. They're frustrated that Jesus is popular with the people. And so last week we looked at the three questions that these leaders asked Jesus. They're, they're trying to trap him, remember. We saw the religious leaders go toe-to-toe with Jesus. They try to discredit him in front of the crowds. And I believe they were trying to endanger him also in front of Roman authorities. They tried to get him to say something unpopular in front of the crowds of people. And they tried to get him to say something unpatriotic to Rome in front of Roman authorities. And so they questioned him about morality, about the Bible, about politics, right? Those are all like, you know, hot-button issues you don't talk about in public. They're asking him very publicly about these things, trying to trap him. So they asked Jesus their questions. None of the questions discredit Jesus, as we saw in our passage last week. In fact, the questions end up discrediting the ones who ask them. And so the people are even more fascinated with what Jesus says. Jesus handles the Pharisees smoothly, and he takes charge of the conversation. And he turns their attention to the main point. Jesus is trying to make a point, right? And and as he's building on this point from last week, now presenting it, and he asked this question about the Messiah. He wanted them to consider God's character and God's love, and he wanted them to think deeply about the promised Messiah and what it means for Israel. And so Jesus now turns the focus to God's promised plan, right? He's, he's trying to get them out of their structured way of thinking about their works, and he's saying, look at what God is doing for you. Look at what God has promised to do. Let's consider God in God's plans. As the conversation with these leaders is about to end, there's just one more question, and it's not the leaders asking Jesus a question. It's Jesus putting a question to the leaders, and the purpose of this question is to make very clear that the authority and the identity of the Messiah, the Christ. And so the religious leaders, consequently the people of Israel, they were all living under the false assumption that the Messiah was going to be a man. He was going to be a revolutionary, like a military leader. He was going to lead a a revolt against Rome. They believed that he would have the right credentials, but he would be human. He wasn't, they weren't thinking of him as being God. Even though the Old Testament identifies the Messiah as God, they had misunderstood that point. And so Jesus confronts them right here in the crowded temple at Passover season. He declares a pronouncement here that the Messiah is, in fact, far more than human. The Messiah is not a human. Jesus very clearly declares that the Messiah is God himself. Now, that's the essence of our passage today. Jesus asks this laser-focused question about the Messiah. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to look back at last week's text, just a couple of verses, uh, so that we can appreciate the timing of Jesus' question here. So Matthew 22, we'll start at verse 35. Okay, the Sadducees had asked Jesus a question, and he shuts them down. It says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. 
One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, here's, here's, the, here's our first verse. It says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. See, the Pharisees had asked him questions, and Jesus had answered it. And the Sadducees asked him questions. Jesus answered it. They send a law expert to ask a question. Jesus answered it, just readily handles that question. And so the Pharisees are all gathered together. They're huddled up. What's our next step? What's our next move? We kind of got nothing here, right? And there they are, still huddled in the midst of the temple courtyard, surrounded by people, Jesus in the center of all of this, the people watching Jesus, watching this group of religious leaders that, that literally led Israel. And for the last time, Jesus personally confronts the religious leaders of the day. And this confrontation is really a twofold thing. First of all, Jesus points out that they're wrong about the Messiah, that they, they totally don't understand the Messiah. With this exchange, Jesus declares to them that you thought the Messiah would be a man. I'm telling you, the Messiah is also God. That's very important. We're going to get more into that in just a minute. And he's also saying that your failure to understand this is an indictment against you all. You don't know God, nor do you know God's word. You don't know God, nor do you know God's word. These are the religious leaders of Israel. This is a a bold move of Jesus. The second thing he's communicating is Jesus is finally answering the question that he was asked when he re-entered the temple this day, earlier in the day. We see that question in chapter 21, where he comes into the temple and he starts teaching, and the religious leaders say, but what authority do you teach these things? Well, by asking this question about the Messiah and getting them to talk about the Messiah and exposing their lack of understanding about the Messiah... Jesus reveals the answer to that question. He's telling them his authority. He's saying, my authority is that I am more than man. I am God. But notice the question. What's your opinion of the Christ? He's not directing the attention to himself. It's an indirect approach. He's not directly saying, I am the Christ. He's not asking, what is your opinion of me? He's asking them for a messianic identification. He's speaking their language. He's saying, I know you believe in the Messiah, right? We're Jews. We all believe in the Messiah. What's your opinion about the Messiah? Who's, whose son is he? That seemed an easy question to answer, and they, they answer quickly, thinking they're, they're smart, they're exposing their knowledge, when really they're kind of just revealing their ignorance of the, of the psalm that Jesus is about to quote. They never really understood the fullness of what the Messiah's role would be. They never really fully understood the Messiah's identity. They thought it would be a political, human uprising. And they expected that one day God would identify a relative of David who would rise up against Rome, this practical kind of uh, revolutionary figure. And so there would have been no hesitation as they answered this question. Now, to be fair, their question is right. It's technically right. It's just not complete. We see that the, the Messiah is a descendant of David. It's, that's laid out very clearly through the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 89, we see this. This is a messianic prophecy. Verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 89, it says, I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And just a few verses later, the Lord continues. Psalm 89, verse 34, he says, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn 
By my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And so God promised that there would be a son of David who would come to reign. And every Jew knew this. This was common knowledge. As we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, um, we've seen this reference to the Messiah as King David's offspring. In Matthew chapter 9, we see the two blind men uh, following Jesus. It says, uh, Jesus goes on and two blind men follow him. They cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. Right? That's a messianic title. In Matthew chapter 20, different blind guys, but there's two blind guys sitting by the road hearing that Jesus passed by, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord God, son of David, have mercy on us. Matthew chapter 12, we see it says a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Demon-possessed, blind, mute. Guy's in bad shape, right? He's brought to Jesus, and it says Jesus healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Right? Right there in their heart, they're like, wow, something's stirring here. Is this the Messiah? And then the Pharisees step in. It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. See, the people were wondering if Jesus was the Messiah. And the misguided Pharisees are forced to bear false witness against Jesus in order to refute them. See, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, all right, and our text was like, you know, months and months ago in the way we teach, but this was just two days ago, according to where we are in our text. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they were shouting, Son of David, Son of David, right? When Jesus enters into the temple the day, the day after, these little boys, it says, sitting right outside the temple door, they're, they're yelling, Son of David, Son of David. Even the little kids in Israel knew that the Messiah was coming from the lineage of David. It's obvious that the Jews had it straight about the genealogy of David. And that's important. That's why Matthew even starts his gospel off with the genealogical account of Jesus. Matthew 1.1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's so important to Matthew. He wants to tell you everything that, that Jesus did, and he wants to bear this witness so you'll believe. But he starts off by giving this crazy genealogy. The Apostle Luke does the same thing in chapter 3. Uh, you see, Matthew does Jesus' genealogy all the way you know, from Abraham through David and then through Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. Luke does the same exact thing, except for he goes from Abraham through David, and then he goes through Mary, Jesus' earthly mom. And we see that Jesus was from the line of David by direct relation on both his mother and his father's side. Talk about like he, like he had it like double downed on the whole Davidic line thing. Both his father and his mother were from the line of David. And that's important for us to see because if his genealogy was questionable in any way, The Pharisees would have exploited that. They would have disqualified him immediately if they could have based on that. They could have eliminated him. And for sure they must have checked. I guarantee they checked his genealogy. It was easy to check someone's genealogy. In the temple in Israel at that time in Jerusalem, uh, they kept very accurate ancient genealogical records for everyone that they could. As a side note... um, The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and along with the destruction of the temple was the destruction of the genealogical records of Israel. 
And so modern day Jews right now, I know there's some people that claim to know their ancestry. I'm from the tribe of this or that. But those records were destroyed in AD 70. It's really hard for modern Jewish people to know for sure their genealogy. But this wasn't the case in Jesus' time. Everyone knew their genealogy. You couldn't hold a civic responsibility in Israel without proving your genealogy. A priest wouldn't marry a gal if she couldn't prove her genealogy was thus and so, whatever the the priest was looking for in in a wife. So genealogy was very important. They would have easily jumped on that and disqualified Jesus if they could. So we see that their answer is right, but it's, it's incomplete. Yeah, he's going to be from the line of David, but David had many descendants. By the time Jesus was living, probably thousands of people were from the line of David. How, how do you dis, is one of them distinguished above all the others? How is one going to be distinguished above Solomon or Hezekiah or even Joseph, you know, Jesus' father? Who's going to stick out? And so if you're looking just for a son of David, if that's the only criteria, you've got a lot of folks to choose from. But being a descendant of David was not the only mark of the, of, of the Messiah. They should have been looking for other things as well. What should they have been looking for? How do we know? How do we know what, what God has promised? We look in Scripture, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He points them to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Okay, this, is, this psalm, even in ancient times, was ascribed to David. It's a psalm of David. No one would have refuted that in Jesus' time. So this is David speaking. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so Jesus reads this, and then he asks the Pharisees, if the Messiah is David's son, then why does David refer to the Messiah as Lord? Now, this particular, in Matthew, the the Greek word that's used for Lord and the Hebrew word in Psalm 110 that's used for Lord is a unique word. It's a special word. It means Lord God. That word is only ascribed to Yahweh in the Old Testament, and it's only ascribed to Father God and Jesus in the New Testament. Now, there are other words for Lord, both in the Greek and in the Hebrew, that are used throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And they mean things like master or landowner or, you know, someone with authority. There's many different meanings of our English word Lord. But this word that David uses in Psalm 110 is very specific. It means God. He's equating the Messiah to God. And Jesus said, if the Messiah is David's son, if he's simply a human, how is it that David calls him Lord God. Why is he calling him God? Is the Messiah a subordinate human offspring to King David, as you believe, right? He's asking the Pharisees. Or is the Messiah the Lord God who will come from David's offspring? Jesus took the Pharisees to Psalm 110 because they all believed that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It was a, it was a psalm that was near and dear to the Jewish people's heart because of its uh, messianic undertones. It was a, it's a very prophetic and specific messianic prophecy, uh, messianic psalm. And so Jesus brings them to Psalm 110 because it's just this undisputed prophetic psalm. And so what did God say to David's Lord? What what is it saying? It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And what does that mean? What is David saying there? Well, it means that God himself, the Yahweh of Israel, the creator of the universe, has designated a position for the Messiah that brings him onto the throne at his right hand. Right? That the Messiah is put in this co-equal place of power and authority with Yahweh God. 
And what he's doing is he's declaring and affirming the deity of the Messiah, that the Messiah is God. The Messiah will sit at this throne at the right hand. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 affirms this, saying that God has lifted Christ and placed him at his right hand. Equal glory belonging to the Messiah as to, uh, as to God the Father. Equal deities. The right hand of God is a symbol of authority. And th- this authority and this power is invincible. It says that his enemies will be put beneath his feet, right? And it's, it's an old idea that we see in the book of Joshua. And Joshua 10 gives you this idea of enemies being put beneath their feet. Um, these defeated kings, Israel went out and defeated this land. And all the kings were brought before Joshua. And it says this in Joshua 10. When they brought these kings out to Joshua... Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, he said, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua then said to them, do not fear, be dismayed, for strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies with whom you fight. See, he's saying that that is the sign of a vanquished foe. These guys just standing there with their heels on the neck of the people they conquered. And that's what, God, that's what David is saying about the Messiah. That, that God, Yahweh, is going to put his enemies beneath his feet. He says, you're going to be sitting in a place of equality with me. A place where you express my authority, my power. And in the New Testament, we see this happen. But it happens in an unexpected way. Jesus conquers, but not as the ancient Jews were expecting them to conquer. Jesus conquers from a cross. And we see that the, the violence of this conqueror, it doesn't happen where he's just ripping people apart. Jesus is violent toward our sin. He's victorious over our death. He's ruthless with the devil. See, Jesus goes after, the Messiah goes after the enemy that we can't defeat on our own. We can't go to battle with sin, death, and the devil. God's power and authority is displayed as a violent act of selfless love and sacrifice through Jesus on the cross. And as God, Jesus is invincible. All those who fight against him, it says, they're going to be put beneath his feet. And the point here is that the son of David, it's not an adequate title in and of itself. Son of God must be added. And Jesus asks them in verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how is he son? Verse 46, it says they don't have an answer for him. They couldn't answer him. These are the experts on the law, and they're not answering. And they couldn't answer because so clear in this passage, but there was so much at stake for them. What's clear in the passage is that the Messiah is both man and God. How can he be son of David and David's Lord at the same time? He's both God and man. The Messiah is the God-man. And there it is right there in Psalm 110, one of Israel's favorite messianic psalms. The Messiah was David's Lord as well as, as, well as his offspring. So what does all this have to do with Jesus? Establishing that kind of groundwork theology that many of us already know. But what does that have to do with Jesus? If he's calling himself Messiah, it kind of seems like this is a pretty indirect way of doing that by asking this question. How does all of this connect with Jesus being the Messiah God? Should the religious leaders have heard this and seen him as the Messiah? Is that reasonable for us to think? Should they have heard this question and and heard this explanation and seen him as a descendant of David and seen him as God? They for sure would have known he was a son of David. We've already talked about that. His genealogy is never questioned. But did they have enough evidence to know that he was also the son of God? 
Did they? I know we talk like they should have and stuff, but what do you think about that? Did they have enough evidence? I think they did. I think they had more than enough evidence. Uh, Jesus did so many things to prove that he was the Son of God that, in my mind, they would have had to fight the obvious to conclude anything other than that. I think that these false religions uh, that want to claim Jesus was just a man, uh, they're either not reading their Bibles, right? And, And most people that don't believe Jesus is God, kind of one of the consistent things you'll see in their life is that they don't read the Bible, Uh, Even with Christians, Christians who are kind of like iffy about the the whole like, well, I don't know if Jesus is the only way. Christianity is so exclusive. I guarantee those are people who don't read their Bible. We have to read the Word of God if we want to know about God, right? The Apostle John says this about Jesus and the many things that, that he did to demonstrate his deity. John chapter 20, it says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's saying there's, there's just many, many other things Jesus did that they just didn't, there wasn't room for, it wasn't necessary to put in the Bible. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying that there's so much more that Jesus did, but there's enough, we've captured enough for you to believe that Jesus is God. If Disney owned the rights to the Bible, they would never stop pumping out sequels, right? They'd be trotting Johnny Depp out until he's 90, right? But just think of Jesus' incredible life and his ministry. Think about the healings and the raising from the dead, the incredible words he spoke, the insight he had, the supernatural knowledge he had. All of that demonstrates that he is the Son of God. They could see that he was a descendant of David, and it was clear by his life and his supernatural power that he was the Son of God. And so here we see God standing before these religious leaders. Think about that. God standing in his temple where people come to worship him, arguing with the religious leaders. And he's so patient and kind with these guys, right? I, I, I couldn't do that. He's, he brings them back in such a loving way, back to the Scripture. These guys would have known this Scripture. They would have loved Psalm 110. It would have been some. They have for sure they all had it memorized. He brings them to Psalm 110. He's appealing to them with their own love language. They stood there, dumbfounded, confused, and indignant. Man, somebody should have said, like just responding to that. You know when, when there's a, the Holy Spirit is nagging you or doing, putting something, pressing something upon your heart? And I could just see there's got to be someone there that's just burning. Like, man, I get it. The Messiah is man and God. How did we miss this? I see both the line of David. I see the supernatural uh, proof of this guy as being the son of God. This guy is God. They were standing in the presence of God himself, waiting for God to rescue, standing, having a conversation with the rescuer. Isn't that crazy? Look at how clear this revelation is in, in, in Revelation 22. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and the morning star. See, I hear the same pride and envy and fear in all of these modern false religions and, and uh, religious systems. Jesus is only a good man. When a man or a movement puts itself or puts himself above or before the word of God. 
the clear teachings of Scripture. When, when men put themselves above Scripture or when a movement puts itself above Scripture, that's the only way you ever get to a conclusion that this book says anything other than Jesus is God. He was the son of David. He was the son of man, but he's also David's Lord. Whenever the writers of the New Testament present Christ, they present him as the son of David and the son of God. The, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans does this at the very beginning. Romans chapter 1, he says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, he's saying that he's David's son in the flesh, and he's God's son declared by his resurrection. He does the same thing when he writes to Timothy. And see, the gospel says that he was born of the seed of David. That's his humanness. And the gospel also says that he was risen from the dead, and that's his deity. This idea of a God-man is the only way to perceive Jesus Christ accurately. Now, I know some, like me, I've been going to church my whole life. I know a lot of this to be true. Jesus is using this precious moment, this last opportunity, taking this last opportunity before he's crucified, to explain the significance of the deity of the Messiah to these guys. It is absolutely vital that we hear this today and we see this today. That Jesus lived out this life, man, God, this God-man, came into the world as a man, but the people that knew him also beheld the glory of God. And over the centuries, there have been many people uh, that have thought about this and written about this. And uh, about 60 years ago, a theologian named Bernard Ram uh, poses these hypotheses that I think are, are helpful as I've been thinking this through. He writes this. He says, if God became a man, we would expect his human life to be sinless. Jesus was. We would expect him to be a model of purity, which Jesus was. We expect his words to be the greatest ever spoken, Jesus' words were. We would expect him to exert a profound power over human personality, which Jesus did. We'd expect some supernatural acts, Jesus did them. We would expect him to manifest the love of God, and Jesus does this in dying on the cross. And so our conclusion, the clear biblical evidence both Old Testament and New Testament, can only be that Jesus is God. There's no debate over this anymore. There, there's no room for debate if you're a student of the Bible. Jesus had shut the mouths of his critics. He silenced those who wanted to trap him by asking questions. The Apostle Mark tells this whole account also in a, a parallel account. It's, it's found in Mark chapter 11 and 12. In Mark chapter 12, verse 37, it says this. Um, Jesus is asking the question. He says, David himself calls him Lord. So in what case is he his son? And then it says, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. The people loved it. This was like first century uh, reality TV, right? Watching Jesus and the religious leaders kind of go toe-to-toe with one another. The tension between them would have been crazy. The common people wanted to hear more. And at first it seems great. Like, wow, is Jesus winning over the common people? Are, Are the common people getting it, but the religious leaders aren't getting it? But we see it's not the case. It's a, it's a fleeting moment here. People tend to follow whatever the trend is. In fact, we know that just a couple days later, these same people, right, that are just enjoying the tension of this moment in the temple are the same people that were gathered out in the public square shouting, crucify him, calling for Jesus' blood. See, this day they only wanted more because they were thinking that he was this political 
leader, this revolutionary leader, and that he was starting this revolution, and he was starting in the temple. They're like, whoa, check it out. He's taking down the religious leaders. He's going to go into the palace next, and he's going to take down the Roman rulers. Well, we know that the next night he does go into the palace, doesn't he? But he goes in there, and he's beaten. He doesn't cut the Roman rulers to pieces. He goes and he dies on a Roman cross, having entered the palace as a prisoner. See, it became clear that Jesus wasn't the revolutionary that they were expecting. Their hearts were closed to the truth about who Jesus was. They weren't putting Scripture above themselves, above their own understanding when it came to forming a theology, forming an understanding of who God is. They didn't put Scripture above their lives when they formed an identity of who they are, right? Because it's clear in Scripture. And we must be careful, though, not to see this passage simply as an ancient people missing the Messiah. Let's not make a spectacle of the Pharisees in their error. Our tendency is to groan with indignation over the fickle hearts of the people, right? One day they're saying, yes, go get them, and the next day they're calling for their blood. This morning, let's ask God to minister the truth about Jesus to our hearts today. What does it mean for us in this culture right now? What does it mean for me to live in light of this truth that Jesus is teaching us through his word today? See, we struggle with the same pride and heart issues as they did 2,000 years ago. Yeah, many of us believe that Jesus is God, but we sometimes put our own ambition and our own goals ahead of our theology, right? Like, our, our theology sits under these priorities we have. I believe Jesus is God on Sundays and other times during the week, either when I need to, when things are so bad, that's the only place I can go, or when it's like my Christian friends are over. The rest of the time, I'm out doing what I want to do without consideration to who is the king ruling and reigning over my life. I, I, I'm not saying that in a condemning way. I'm confessing that to you. That's a tendency I think we all have. We all have this fickle heart like we see the people in Israel have, right? The rah-rah Jesus on a Sunday. But in the middle of the week, sometimes our priorities and our hearts and our desires say crucify him. And we, we cast him aside as we pursue what we want. It's a challenge I have, this battle I have in my heart. And I need to today see Jesus as God. The Pharisees may have been responsible for getting Jesus on the cross physically, but I am just as guilty. My sin put Jesus on the cross. And so who do you say Jesus is? What's your response to that question in your heart? Right? Not just like outwardly, but like in your heart. Who is Jesus? Uh, the Apostle Peter responded to this question in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who are you? Who is Jesus to you today? Who is Jesus to you today? See, it's God's perfect will for each of us to recognize who Jesus is and respond to him. Our passage today, we see Jesus confronting the Pharisees, and and in the same way, he's confronting each one of us today. In what ways do we tweak our theology as we live out this life? In what ways do we hold back in living in light of Jesus being God? Because who we say Jesus is ultimately dictates 
our thoughts and our actions toward God, towards others, towards politics, toward culture. False religions and cults don't believe in Jesus, and it's obvious. If you've ever been a part of one of those uh, belief systems, it's obvious that Jesus doesn't rule and reign there. False worldviews, and, and, and you, get, you go to like political rallies where people are angry and frustrated, and they want to make decisions and do things based on anger and frustration. Man, that is not a place of peace, right? That is not a place where the gospel is advancing. See, we have to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. We make Jesus the motivation for what we do. We set Jesus before us to recognize the course that God has set before us and to follow him as we live out our lives. Just as the Apostle Peter responds to Jesus' question, and it was the grace of God that allowed him to see Jesus, not just as the Messiah, right, the Son of David. He says, you are the Son of God. He said, the Son of the living God requires the grace of God. And so as we now enter back into worship, the lights are going to go down and we're going to sing some songs that, that declare some things about God. The challenge here today is how do we respond to Jesus' question? The Pharisees responded one way, right? And if you, th- if you think about it, if it's like those old choose-your-own-adventure books when you're little, you know, they weren't real books because you weren't allowed to do book reports on them, but they're the books every boy wants to read. But that, those books, if, if you're like choose your own let's go back and say like, well, what if, what if the Pharisees believed? What would that have meant for Israel in that moment, right? What would would that have meant for the world to see the Messiah as the Messiah, as he walked on the earth? I mean, it's just, you think about that. Think about the implications of your life. Think about the implications of of the life of this church on our community. What's it going to mean for the city and the county of Ventura in 2018 this year? That depends greatly on how we answer Jesus's question. Who do you say Jesus is? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and God, we pray for your grace now as we respond. Jesus, you said that the Holy Spirit was given to us to convict us of sins. We'd recognize sin and, and convince us of the righteousness of Christ. And God, we need, we need both of those things today. And pray, God, as we declare what is true about you, as we declare what is true about your character, God, as we recognize and and, and receive what is true about us in light of who you are, we pray, God, for the grace to walk in truth. We love you, God. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for those who don't know you, be a day of edification and maturity for those of us who do, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.